0: The year is 1987, and this podcast will swallow your soul. The movie? Evil Dead 2. everyone, and welcome to Unspooled.
2: Unspooled, where we unspool the greatest films of all time to see if they're classics or just remembered that way.
0: I'm Amy Nicholson. I am a film critic for The New York Times.
2: I am Paul Shear, I'm an actor and a writer and producer, and I have uh, written once for The New York Times, Amy, once, one time. What did you write? I wrote a piece about how I got into a bar fight. Oh, my. I'm going to have to pull that up and find out how you got into a bar fight. There you go. You almost got me into a bar fight. I did because you lost our bet (laughs) and had to wear a Clippers jersey to the Battle of Los Angeles, the last game of the season between the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, You wore a sheer jersey, which I have a couple of Clippers jerseys with my name on them. Uh, So I think that was probably the better one to pick. Uh, I wish I had a Russell Westbrook one for you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the Clippers won that game, but I appreciate you wearing it out. I didn't even think you, I didn't even think part of the bet meant that you had to wear it to a place to watch the game, but you you went above and beyond. And oh, you yeah. can see pictures of Amy on our social media. Uh, if it wearing... was in
0: public, it didn't happen. And when I walked in, I walked up, I ordered myself a drink, and immediately the bartender went Clippers jersey.
2: Oh and wow! I, wow! And I
0: had to say I lost a bet, and in fact, I wrote the words "lost." And I'll bet on my knuckles, because I just had to keep explaining it to people, because my friends were very confused.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, before we start today's episode uh, about Evil Dead 2, I want to just talk about something that came up this week, which is they found the original voice take of the Wilhelm scream. We talked about the Wilhelm scream here on the show a handful of times. It's this very famous scream that I think you've heard in every Steven Spielberg movie uh, or something like that. Like, it is a very... Particular scream that has just been in cinema history for such a long time, and this week somebody unearthed the director directing the actor to do the Wilhelm scream, and I thought it would be fun just to play just a little bit of that. Man getting bit by an alligator and he screams.
1: first one you did up here was much better. Yeah. Ow!
0: Oh! No, not, not an owl. A real scream of pain. Ow! Oh! If the Wilhelm scream didn't exist, if you'd never heard it, if I said, Paul, you're a man who just got bitten, what would you sound like?
2: Ow! Oh! Is that okay? <laughs> uh did you read that
0: story there was like a story in the new york times uh like last week about a man bitten by a snake on a plane or no it was like a pilot was flying a tiny like puddle jumper somewhere in africa and he looked down on his lap he felt like there was something cold like he thought maybe he'd spilled his water on his lap and there was like a giant cobra i think it was six or seven feet maybe nine feet long here it is i just pulled up there a cobra appeared in mid-flight Uh, the pilot's quick thinking saved lives. But yeah, it was a poisonous snake. He had to stay very calm and land the plane.
2: Because a a bite from that could kill you in 30 minutes and he was 11,000 feet in the air. My God. Well, you know, talk about (laughs) a scary thing. I think this is a great segue from screams and snake bites to a movie that has a lot of bites and a lot of screams, which is Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2 is a, a film that I think cements Sam Raimi in not only the horror pantheon, but kind of in this new wave of filmmakers of the 80s that have a very unique way of making movies.
0: It's true. I feel like this really makes such a perfect counterpoint to our El Mariachi conversation last week. Even though I would say, honestly, the more I watch Evil Dead 2, the more questions I have, I don't think I even understand to this day how being... Evil Dead works. Do you just get bitten and then you're evil? It's contagious? I don't even know. Yeah, I I mean, like,
2: (laughs) because sometimes just the hand could get it, but not the rest of the body. I don't understand if it It goes in the bloodstream. Who cares? But we are along for this really fun journey. Uh, One of the fun things that we're not going to get a chance to talk about, but I want to mention it here, is that uh, that big head at the end of Evil Dead 2 that comes in and kind of sucks, you know, uh, Ash out to hell. Uh, that was so big they couldn't actually take it with them uh, back to California. So they left it uh, (laughs) where they shot the film. And years later, they found it in like a haunted house in North Carolina. Somebody repurposed it and used that big head. So uh, it got put to good use there.
0: Oh, bless them. As a person with a big head, I'm glad that other people are treasuring gigantic scary heads.
2: (laughs) Well, let's get into why this movie works. If Bruce Campbell is the only person who could play Ash and... What comes when filmmakers support each other? Amy, I think it's time to unspool it, baby. The year is 1987, and Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell are worried that their film careers might be over if this third feature is a flop. The old childhood friends started shooting Super 8 movies together in high school. They weren't horror guys. They wanted to make comedies. But in a post-Texas Chainsaw Massacre, post-Halloween world, they figured they could get people to watch a story about a cabin where people get possessed by evil spirits and awful things happen. Their short film, Within the Woods, was their test balloon. And then... The month Raimi turned 20, they reworked Within the Woods into the 1981 feature, The Evil Dead.
0: The first Evil Dead was a miserable, months-and-months-long independent film shoot that miraculously worked out in their favor when their incredibly savvy distributor, Irvin Shapiro, more on him in a bit in the horrors of that awful shoot, when Irvin took the film to the 1982 Cannes Film Festival, where no less than Stephen King called it, quote-unquote, ferociously original. That's amazing, right? They're totally set. Their careers are going to be great. Everything's awesome.
2: Well, after Evil Dead, Raimi and Campbell and company teamed up with their new friends, the Cohen brothers, and decided to work together on a studio picture with a real budget. That movie was called Crime Wave, and it was the worst experience of their lives. I mean, so bad professionally and critically and emotionally that they probably would have never gotten to make a film again if they hadn't decided to tell the same cabin in the woods story for a third time with the same actor and make it their best version, which is, of course, Evil Dead 2.
0: Evil Dead 2 once again stars Bruce Campbell as Ash, who, just like in the first movie, goes to a cabin with his girlfriend, Linda, where there is a book called The Necronomicon or The Naturum Demento that, to Ash and Linda's surprise, resurrects an evil spirit. The woods are possessed, and this older woman, Henrietta, who owns the cabin with her husband, she is possessed. Her husband is now a spirit. And then their archaeologist daughter, Annie, shows up with her boyfriend and also this local couple, Jake and Bobby Joe, and all sorts of chaos happens, like mounted deer heads are screaming. Ash cuts off his own hand. Ash's severed hand scrambles everywhere and tries to hold hands with people. A trapdoor swallows people and spits them out in floods of blood. Everybody who worked on this film got put through the physical ringer. And thanks to the ingenuity of the crew and this go-for-broke energy that is all over the screen, Evil Dead 2 looks cheap,
2: but awesome. It was released on March 13th, 1987 and did okay. But its reputation grew, and now it is safe to call it a stone-cold classic whose visual style has been wildly influential. I mean, the team effort from Ramy and Campbell and the crew sticking together through all these tough times totally worked.
0: Yeah, their careers would go on and on and on. You might say they took each other by the severed hand, and in the words of Bon Jovi's 1981 song that was on the charts that weekend of March 13th, 1987... Something like this happened.
2: Ah, classic song, classic movie. I kind of feel like... Ash would be a Bon Jovi guy.
0: Oh yeah, man! Are you kidding me? No, no, no! He'd be wailing on that guitar <laughs> with his chainsaw hand.
2: Um, Amy, this is a really interesting film because it's not—it's not necessarily a sequel, even though it's called Evil Dead Two, and it's not necessarily a remake. Let's talk about the title, Evil Dead Two, but it's not a sequel, right? Not really. It opens with
0: a sort of a abbreviated recap minus most of the characters of the first film, but at the beginning of this movie, Ash clearly does not know what the Necronomicon is, and he would definitely know if he remembered Evil Dead 1.
2: And, you know, I understand that they couldn't get the rights to the first film, so they couldn't really make it a sequel, and plus, there's no reason for Ash to go back, right? So they have to kind of start over again, and I'm so glad that they did, because they get a chance, I think, to write the ship, right? They really lean in to the comedy. We are talking about this a little bit before. Like they wanted to make comedies and Evil Dead is visually really fun and weird and different, but this definitely feels much more like, you know, horror by the way of Three Stooges. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, very
2: clearly, like I even found an interview with Sammy where he was like,
0: oh yeah, the thing where the eyeball pops out and like goes into Bobby Joe's mouth. I totally just stole that from
1: the Three Stooges. There were gags that were lifted directly out of Three Stooges episodes. The adaptation of a scene from yeah. Three Stooges yeah. that yeah. I like. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And they they're getting a little pissed. So they grab grapes, hit them with a salvo,
2: boys, they put them in their elbows. <laughs> they put in the grapes and he goes,
0: Oh <laughs> In a way, that reminds me of kind of the conversation we had last week about Robert Rodriguez. I don't really want to make, you know a hardcore action film. I'm a family guy, but I guess this is what I have to do to get ahead. And here it's sort of the same thing. We don't really want to make a horror film. We want to make comedy films. Can we make a comedy horror film that actually works? And, and let me just ask you this question
2: right off at the top. Do you think Evil Dead 2 is scary? No, I don't. And this is the funny thing about it because my entire childhood growing up, I was afraid of this movie. When I saw the cover box on the shelf at the video store, it looked way more horrifying. There is this image of like a human skull with regular eyes inside of it. And it just seemed to me like this movie was going to creep me out in the biggest way. It had no sense of that fun. And I wonder if part of the trick of this movie was convincing the audience that it was a horror film and then when they got there they would just have a great time and forget that they were there for a horror film and just enjoyed the comedy of the horror
0: (laughs) you're right it's like it's not a horror film but it is a shocking film it hits like the shock buttons that a horror film would hit but without scaring you you know how is that happening oh my god that's so much blood whoa that's so gross and weird What? You you feel upended. You feel just like I'm in an alternate universe, but not in a scary way, just in a
2: disorienting way. But also not in a disgusting way, right? Because this is a movie where you're seeing vats of blood. You're seeing, you know, people chop off their own hands. Like you said, swallowing eyeballs. And it's done in a way where everything feels like you're in on the bit. And maybe it's part of the sound effects, you know, whether it's the sound effects of monkeys, you know, as one creature is expanding its neck, or it's just the the verbalization of Ash's hand when it comes to life, right? It seems like a creature, even though Ash is a human body and his hand has no way to make sound, like they are finding ways to make that a character, everything about this becomes really fun. And I, and goofy is maybe the way I would talk about it. Like I know I said three stooges, but maybe a more apt comparison is a cartoon. It feels like a cartoon.
0: It does feel like a cartoon. I mean, even little things that are horrifying. Like he looks out the window, his dead girlfriend is out there dancing naked, skeletal with her own severed head And she's doing this ballet, and everything about her is like rotted and decomposing, except for some reason her magnificent tits. And then she leaps into the woods and just does the tiniest little, ah. (laughs) But you know the word that I would throw out to describe this movie? No matter how many times I've watched it, it still feels dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It it feels dangerous. It feels like a film where anything could happen because anything is happening on the screen. That here's a movie, gonna call itself Evil Dead 2 for no apparent reason if you've watched the movie and wouldn't even know what the title is. You're like, why is this a sequel? Evil Dead 2, we're just gonna do it. We can call ourselves Evil Dead 2. It's what we're gonna do. And that kind of like, we're gonna do what we want thing, that this is a film that starts off so traditional. Couple driving into the cabin in the house in the woods And ends with somebody flashing back in time to kill a demonoid and being anointed a leader. Like a movie that can take you on that arc is a movie that can do anything it wants to.
3: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. I'll just jump on that and say, if I'm in the theater watching this movie, and within the first six minutes, the love interest is killed? I mean... It is wild. Our our lovers who are on the verge of, you know, maybe getting married. They, they have true love. They look like they're perfect for each other. Within the first six minutes, our lead character has to chop off her head with a shovel. And at that moment, like this whole idea of what are we in store for goes right out the window because it's a two person movie cabin in the woods. And we're saying it's a sequel, but obviously people aren't coming to this film with baggage. They don't know what's going on. Can you put yourself in that position of going like, holy shit, this is where it's, this is what we're in for. Like it really, it really does play with your sense of horror films right out of the gate because also we're used to final girls is Ash a final girl? I mean, is like, or I don't know what Ash is. I mean, Ash clearly, uh, is the person who stays alive for the entire film, but is he, is he fulfilling the, uh, the role of a final girl?
0: Right. Because this movie gives us a character who would be the final girl, you know, the archaeologist's daughter who shows up and she seems very smart and she knows everything about how these horrible books read. She's the person who should be able to figure this all out. and, She dies. She gets stabbed in the back and she dies at the end of this. And it it is kind of one of those psych-outs where, like, at this point, 1987, almost a decade has gone by since Halloween. You know, over a decade has gone by since Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there is this idea of how horror films work. You're like, there's a template. It is established. And this is one of those movies that just breaks it open. Where, like, I think at this point in 1987, when you go to see a horror film, you're going to feel... You're going to the theater in order to feel a little bit above it all, to be like, ha-ha, I'm going to watch some dumb people get stabbed, you know? And then this movie is just changing things on you right and left. And the little beats that you're sort of, like, expecting to sneer at, condescend, you know, at the beginning of these movies, you're supposed to really establish that, like, the guy and the girl are deeply in love. And how do they do it? In kind of a way where you're like, is this bad acting or is it fucking with me? And you can't really tell. When Bruce Campbell in minute 2 of this movie is playing piano for his girlfriend, it seems so artificial. You don't really believe his hands are doing it. He looks insane. And is it is it sincere or are we the target? Who's getting laughed at here? put this out there i think part of this is bruce campbell's face like bruce campbell looks like a leading man right he looks like he should or he should, he looks like he lo- he looks like he should look like a leading man he's got the chin that he's very famous for he's got the cheekbones he's got really emotional eyes he's tall he's got the hair he's got the face he's very handsome but there is something so strange about him you know something right. so off kilter that you're like do i trust
2: you as the leading man? What movie are we where you are the leading man? What is going on? Well, I don't think this movie works if it isn't for Bruce Campbell. Like Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi have a tone. Together, it really, really works. And Bruce Campbell is playing the tone of this movie. Like it is elevated. And this word meta gets tossed around a lot, but I don't even think it's meta. It's like, it is something a little bit more organic, something that's a little bit more natural, but anybody else doing this, I don't think it it feels this way. It's kind of the same way that Leslie Nielsen found this role within these parody films, you know, Naked Gun and things like that. Like, he looks like a leading man, but he could say things in a way and be goofy in a way that you weren't expecting. I think, obviously, John Hamm has, has done elements of that. Um, but Bruce Campbell here he looks a little bit like Plastic Man. His face is very expressive. It's funny to see him beat up. He can take a beating well. And I think that's part of it too. His physical comedy is, and I know we keep on saying, it's like this, it's like this. It has elements of um, the silent film stars that we've talked about here on this show, right? It, It has an element where you're like, oh my gosh, these feel like real stunts. I'm watching Buster Keaton, right? Like he's got this very expressive face. And oftentimes I think when you think about a leading man, they don't have an expressive face. There's something about his face that kind of can do both, right? It's this rubbery thing, but also this uh, very traditionally attractive man.
0: Yeah, no, and it makes perfect sense because like, It's not as though Bruce Campbell auditioned for Evil Dead 2 and was cast in it and was like, okay, I'm going to hear you, Sam Raimi, talk about this tone and see if I can figure it out. It's that Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell grew up together, met each other for the first time in eighth grade, and created this tone together with their friends, created this sensibility. So it's not like he's coming to this movie having to learn something. He just already is it. Like when they were kids, they would, he and Sam Raimi would go to Sam's house and just practice falling down the stairs over and over and over again until they could do these physical stunts. It is kind of like a Buster Keaton training. And there's, I think, a trust between them where like Bruce Campbell is like, I'm going to do this movie and Sam Raimi's going to fuck with me and hurt me and push me downstairs and I'm going to get beaten up, but he is my best friend and I can trust him and I'm not going to die.
2: The way that, he takes his own punch on himself and flips over is incredibly acrobatic. Even something small, like when his face is down in a puddle of mud and you just see these like bubbles of air popping up. I'm watching that going, this is Bruce Campbell seeing how long he can stay face down in a puddle of mud. Cause there's no oxygen tank there. This is not a movie where there are safety protocols like that. We talked to Bruce a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, they were doing things in slightly dangerous ways, um, and I feel like they're both pushing each other to the limit. It reminds me of also great collaborations like Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. Like, where does that sensibility begin and end? It's sort of like one is envisioning the idea and the other one's executing it, and I think that they really work well together. This writing directing duo, where they where it's hard to tell where one ends and one begins. Because I think that Bruce Campbell, as we now have seen with Evil Dead Rises, is somebody who's very hands-on in this property and knows what makes it work. Like, they are simpatico.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's a clip from 1983 of, like, young Bruce Campbell on a talk show talking about why it was so important to him to be proactive in the making
2: of this film. But the same sense, being from Detroit, they're not, they really don't have auditions for feature films every two weeks, you know? as they do in the major cities Los Mm -hmm. Angeles or or, uh, New York. And uh, it's kind of forced us, anyone who wants to make a feature film in Detroit, whether they're an actor or an electrician or whatever, they've got to be involved in it to the point where it comes out. So in order for me, I guess, to really promote acting, uh, you've got to be involved in the production of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're also more involved in the filmmaking, so, you know, maybe I can suggest to the sound editor, well, when my head's getting smashed against this wall, let's put a real good sound effect in there.
0: Yeah, he's hands-on in getting this movie made. He's hands-on in buying thrift store suits and putting them on and buying himself a cheap briefcase and going out and trying to get them money to make these films.
2: It's so funny to think about that's how they raise money for movies, like to go out and basically make a sales pitch. Like you're going into people's offices, you know, saying like, okay, we got a great idea. cabin in the woods (laughs) a giant monster is going to grab him and throw him into medieval times
0: yeah we're 20 years old please give us some money we have all these super eight films you can check them out like what (laughs) but I love that you refer to this as a as a silent movie because it is for so much of like pretty much the first half of this movie until until the other people show up at the cabin it's like the Bruce Campbell show I mean what are the only words he says and it makes me laugh every time he talks chainsaw Bruce Campbell running around this house, doing all of these stunts, doing these stunts backwards, because a lot of times to get the special effects, right? He had to do it backwards and then they'd play it in forward order. So he's throwing himself around the room, you know, and in, in, in just being incredibly in physical control. And there's this moment where I was, I was thinking a couple things. One, I was thinking, this is almost like the comedy horror version of Sunrise. You know, because it's like here you are in a cabin and there's this like haunting evil and spirits and women who can be like sort of seductive and change forms. And like, what is a vulnerable man with lots of emotions supposed to do who's also capable of murder? Like, I think there's shared DNA in the universe between like the maybe husband murderer in Sunrise and Bruce Campbell here and just this ability in the sound era to go for broke so expressively, so physically, so theatrically. And then there's that moment, it's like not even 15 minutes into the movie where so much stuff has happened. He like just sits in a rocking chair and he starts screaming in horror and then he starts laughing. And like the line between screaming and laughing is so hard to tell. And it is to me in a nutshell what it's like watching this film. (laughs) those are the tones. Like you push somebody to hysteria and who even knows what you're feeling?
2: Yeah. Well, you're on like the roller coaster. You're just going up and down. and And I feel like there are these interesting changes that Raimi makes to make it feel more fun like that. Like, you know, just to briefly touch on it, like the first film, Evil Dead, there's one scene in that film. I think it's worth talking about in the sense of why it's not in this film, if this is a remake, which is where, like, a tree sexually assaults one of the Uh women in Evil Dead, right? And and that's a scene that gets a lot of backlash in the first film. And I think they're trying to push the limits and stuff like that. But I think, in rewatching that a couple months ago, it's not fun. And that seems to be, like, where this movie kind of diverges. It's like, this becomes more of a fun ride where the consequences... Or the everything is extreme. So it becomes really heightened. And you don't have any of that, those feelings that you might get when you watch a movie like a Saw or a Hostel, where you're like, oh, okay, I'm I'm uncomfortable now. Even when Ash is chopping off his own hand, like I feel like this is Sam Raimi figuring out what his tone actually is, like what he actually has to do to make a movie that works. Like there's a part of me that feels like that scene in Evil Dead One is he's like, okay, I'm doing what I should probably be doing for a horror movie, right? This should be in a horror movie. And Evil Dead 2 feels like I'm making the movie that I want to make. I don't think that, like, his instinct is the raping tree.
0: No, you're right. Like, the raping tree, which always kicks me out of the movie when I watch it. Yeah. That feels like what you do when you're 20 years old and you're trying to put on, like, the costume of provocateur. Right. You know? Yeah. It doesn't feel... Earned it doesn't feel like it fits, and I feel like e- even by the time he made Evil Dead Two, yeah, he knew enough he didn't want to do that. That wasn't who he was.
2: And then you start to get who he actually is, and that starts to separate this movie from all the other horror movies at this time. This is not a traditional Jason Freddy. This is uniquely like an auteur driven horror. Like, and I think this is something obviously we talked about this in the beginning. Like. Okay, horror's hot. So we make a horror movie that has some comedy in it. Like this is now become what a lot of people have used as their entry point into Hollywood system. If I can make a great horror movie, they can bring me here. So I feel like this is something that separates itself from the norm, but also I wouldn't even say it it plays into the norm just by its conceit, but that's it. I mean, once like the conceit of cabin in the woods. You know, that's about all that it really embraces into the conceit of, like, a traditional horror movie. Like, the rest is just bonkers. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. And, you know, from, you know, putting his girlfriend's head in a vice, and again, talking about that here, like, we just talked about the raping tree, we also have a scene here where he's (laughs) chainsawing his girlfriend's head, which is in a vice. Now, that scene's not upsetting to me. Like, that's not, because it's done in such a style... That doesn't feel uh, misogynistic. It doesn't feel, like, wrong. It's like, no, fuck yeah, you gotta kill You gotta chop her head like that. Like, it just, the power of those characters or this demon is so strong that, like, you buy into everything. I feel like that's that tone makes this film a lot more fun. And I feel like that, like, that's a big swing. It's a big swing that Sam Raimi was lucky to have somebody start to see in that person. We didn't talk about this in the beginning. I think that he really owes his career to is uh, is Stephen King, because did you know about this whole thing where Stephen King basically wrote an article about how good the first Evil Dead was, and that actually got the Evil Dead made, or not made, but got it released in a way where people were like, "Oh, well, Stephen King says it's good," and Stephen King wrote this article in um like uh, was it like Twilight Zone magazine or something like that? It, like, uh, you know, but he said it was the most a ferociously original horror film of 1982. And that quote just helped it get a little bit more attention. And I do feel like that endorsement, that idea of seeing something in this director, like something that was different, not just, it wasn't just like, oh, it's horror and it's gross. It was a style and a tone really helped this movie. And I think about that a lot. Like, thank God you have somebody out there like Stephen King who who gave it some lift. I mean, this is the question we talked about last week. How do you know
0: within five minutes whether a movie is better than the pack? Right? Right. And you know, we talked about that with El Mariachi, and here it feels exactly the same. How do you know in five minutes that this movie and Evil Dead One are better than the pack? Like, what is that subconscious magic, that subconscious mojo? And the first thing I can think of here is wherever the camera is, it feels like exactly the weirdest, best place. You know, there's not a single placement where it just feels phoned in where, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, I don't know. I'm inside a cabin. I'll just put the camera here. Like, oh, you can see some walls. It looks pretty creepy. We're done. Like everything in this movie and in the first Evil Dead feels like Sam Raimi was like, I have to hit a home run. And how am I going to make this interesting? And how am I going to make this different? And you trust a film when you see the intelligence behind the camera shots. Here, there's stuff in Evil Dead too that when you watch it, you're like, "Never saw that before. That's brand new. You invented that." And it's because you feel the thought
2: that went into it. And thinking like, like, there's a couple of sequences here. I'm like, how did he do it? Because there's something about both of these films and watching them back to back, where there's an unapologetic nature for the budget that they have, right? They're not trying to make excuses. They're not trying to hide it. They're trying to push everything to its limits. Like this is clearly not a cabin in the woods. Like this is a, you know, like as far as like you will see these scenes where it looks like we're just on a straight up set. There's nothing outside that window and the set isn't the best you know it's yeah they're
0: shooting inside like a gymnasium i think
2: yeah and there's something about that where i think you could just embrace it like like the filmmaker embraces what they have i think by just embracing like hey look some of these scenes are going to look weird they're going to be like we're going to speed up things it basically makes it more short I think, in a way, right? By not by not being embarrassed about it, by embracing every part of it, you're saying, come on in. I know, I know what we got, but it doesn't make a difference. Like, this is what we have, like, this is what you should be focused on. And I think continually by giving you these like different POVs, by, you know, showing you like every three or four minutes, we're getting an effect, whether it's, uh, you know, some sort of model or it's, you know, I don't know, Sam Raimi attaching uh, Bruce to like a camera and just running him through the forest. Like there's so much that you're getting lost in that I feel like you can't stop to take anything else in. Maybe that's what it is. Like it's moving at such a clip. And I think that's the same way with Desperado. It moves at such a clip that you're like, I gotta, I I can't sit here and think about it too much.
0: Or you know what I'm thinking now, hearing you describe it in that way, is it's like every time you go to see a movie, it's kind of like you're going on a date with that movie, mm-hmm. right? Especially right. if it's like your first time seeing a movie by a by a filmmaking team that you've never seen before. And you know, sometimes you can go on a date. And you're like, it, I'm really using this analogy just because I've been watching a Netflix dating show. But no, like you can go on a date with somebody and they'll be like, you can tell that they're a little slick, that they're putting their best foot forward and it seems a little insincere, you know? Like, oh, no, 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 no. I got the good special effects. I'm good. I'm here. I'm here. Or you can go on a date with somebody who's like, I have some problems. We can talk about it bluntly. I don't have all the money in the world, but I'm aware and I'm funny and I will charm the hell out of you. And that's what Evil Dead is.
2: Well, I was going to say, it's the difference between someone taking you to a night's fancy restaurant or going, this place has the best hot dogs (laughs) in New York City. And you go, I don't even eat hot dogs. They're like, well, okay, I know you don't eat hot dogs, but this, you got to try this hot dog because it's going to be amazing. And you're like, oh shit, I like hot dogs. Like, you know, it's like, it's, you don't even know what you're expecting, but it's, It is an assured nature of going like, I'm going to show you something really, really fun.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And there's sort of like the playful audacity of it. You know, the the trick that always stands out to me here is um, the mirror scene where Bruce Campbell is like freaking out, losing his mind in that stretch of the film. It's just the Bruce Campbell show looking at his reflection in the mirror, you know, being like, and then suddenly the mirror pops out and starts screaming at him.
3: We just cut up our girlfriend with a chainsaw. Does that sound fine?
0: <laughs> I love that scene because it always catches me off guard. I'm always like, whoa, how not they do that special effect again? And then you rewind and then you're like, oh, right. The, the back of the head facing the Bruce Campbell reflection is just clearly not Bruce Campbell. Doesn't even really look like him. Right. The shape of the cheekbones is different. Not Bruce Campbell, just somebody with dark hair that they put there to kind of trick us into believing it's Bruce Campbell. And that kind of makes me love it more because I'm like, you got me, so charming, you did it. And you really pulled off that effect. And it didn't matter, the weight, the fact that you pulled it off so boldly, that it worked so well, I don't care that you just had some stand-in pertaining to be Bruce Campbell.
2: Well, this, you know, and I don't like, uh, we saw Dungeons and Dragons together, uh, the new movie, Honor Among Thieves. And what I really liked about that movie was something similar to what we're talking about here. Practical effects, weird things, puppets. You know, we've gotten into this zone. I think it makes you more engaged. There's a really funny sequence in the opening of Dungeons and Dragons where um, there is like a bird man. And it looks like it is like a, it's kind of, and obviously it's a hugely budgeted film, but it looks a little bit like a shitty mascot. It's like there is something really funny about it. And there, and, we don't mind seeing some of the seams there. We don't mind. I think it makes us part of the process a little bit more. I don't know. Yeah. The, you know, no, it, just, yeah. It, it involves us. It's like, no, no, no. We're all in on this. We get it. We get it. We're not trying That's to exactly fool you. That's
0: exactly it. It feels like it trusts you to know that you're having an imaginative collaborative experience. Yes. You know, that it's like, you know why you're here. I know why you're here. You bought money to sit down on this chair. We know why you're here. And I trust you to go on this journey with me. It feels like you're being invited along and not like you're just supposed to be some passive spectator.
2: Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, there's something so amazing about one of the staples of this film, which is after Ash has chopped off his own hand because his hand has uh, gone against him. Um, And then the whole sequence of the hand is amazing. But the the moment where he decides to make his hand a chainsaw right like this is such an iconic image of this franchise chainsaw hand ash and how does he do it who cares right we're just we we are on board with it just heightening and i think that maybe you can actually do more When you invite the audience to come in with you, like you're, you're almost, you're almost extending your hand to them. And I think that the audience is willing to take more chances when you're trying to fool them. They're always trying to find the seams. And if you're showing them the seams, they're actually just watching. And I know we're talking about the same thing, but I think that that may be it because the, the moment that he puts on that chainsaw hand, it's, it's, that's it that, wow, I'm in 1 million percent. And by the way, that groovy, is that written or is that Bruce? Because it's like (laughs) talking to Bruce Campbell, like I feel like Bruce Campbell, I mean, it's hard when you have an iconic character like Ash, where does Ash begin? Where does Bruce Campbell end? I think talking to Bruce, I see elements of Ash, but I like, is that him? It feels like it's him. That feels like these things of let's get some champagne, baby, like that energy that like, that's who he is i've seen him in burn notice i've seen him in different things like he's got a he's got a little bit of that that like swagger hey what do you say we have some champagne eh huh, baby huh? <laughs> sure <laughs> after all i'm a man and you're a woman <laughs> at least last
3: time i checked
0: <laughs> yeah like where when you are an actor playing a character who was written for you and you are also creating it with that director and when it feels like a completely full-on collaborative experience yeah where is the line i mean they were so bonded that when the production company was like, okay, you're editing this in LA, but we only have money for two of the three of you to be in LA, implying that like Bruce Campbell was going to be the third person, not there. Uh, Bruce was like, it's, we're a three, we are a three team group, you know, if Sam is there and I think if, I can't remember if it was either Scott Spiegel or the editor, but he's like, if, if they are there, I have to be there. Like what actors ins- insisting on coming to their own edit for the whole thing? And being like, it would be anathema for me to not be there for the entire edit. I mean, in I this way, it. he kind of is a lot like um, like uh, Carlos Gallardo, who was the star of, of El Mariachi. Like, I'm not just the actor. I am, in a way, the producer. I am the person making this. Like, and you are just, you're invested. You're so mm. invested. Like, it seems rare to me to have a part where an actor is this absolutely invested from the absolute beginning
2: well, let's even talk about the other partnership here that also I think is so important, which is the Cohen Brothers. Right? Because this is the you know, raising this money like uh I believe the Cohen Brothers uh said that on the uh the Criterion release of Blood Simple, they said Sam taught them early on if you call someone on the phone and ask them to invest in a the movie, they'll tell you to go to hell. But if you tell them I have a piece of film to show you, then you go to their office or you go to their living room, you set up a projector and you show it to them, you might actually get that money. And so this is like, this is a perfect example of these two types of people really working together, this collaboration of helping each other make something. And, they, and they're very distinctive, the Coen brothers, and they also share a lot of similarities, I think, this, this partnership. I mean, obviously it's Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, but it's also Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers here too. No, you're right. They
0: like completely fed and shaped each other. I mean, their relationship starts with the first Evil Dead. Joel Cohen was the assistant editor on that. And they just really hit it off. He loved the idea that they had made this film, you know, by just by going to investors, going to Michigan dentists and saying like, hey, the great thing about having Michigan dentists fund your first film is that they aren't trying to look at dailies. Like, you have complete creative freedom if you have Michigan dentists and not studio people trying to give you notes to justify their jobs. And that was what inspired the Coens to be like, well, we can do that and make Blood simple. And that started their career. And then they formed this, like, tag team partnership. They get a house together. They're living here in Silver Lake. It seems like the coolest house ever. Like, I think, okay, they're living in a house as they're writing Evil Dead 2. And it's like the Coens and Raimi... And also Francis McDormand and like Kathy Bates and Holly Hunter just hanging out so in Silver Lake amazing. writing this movie together. I mean, if you look at the character of Bobby Joe, you know, the kind of like, I'm gonna call her the redneck girlfriend because we don't really have that much to say about her character fully. But that character written for Holly Hunter, which you can really see once you put Holly Hunter's head on it in your imagination, a tough as nails, brassy southern girl yeah. being like, uh-uh. I mean, it's basically just who she is in raising Arizona the year like this year. year before put into this movie, and even their ability to, like, smash genres together. It feels like a tag team in the way of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez meeting each other after their first film and being like, oh, yeah, like, let's rise up together. Let's change cinema together.
3: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this
2: juicy gem
3: of a detour.
2: It's interesting because I also feel like it took them a while to figure out exactly what they wanted to make. Right. Because we talked about Crime Wave, which is a big mess. Right. You know, it's it's.
0: Right, which the Cohens wrote. And I think that's right. why the Cohens don't even... The Cohens are like, we will now forever more direct what we write.
2: And this is like this break... Not a breakup, but it's sort of like a defining of what each is good at. And I think there's really something interesting where you see the similarities really clearly, which is, I love a simple plan. And, and if you love a simple plan, that's Sam Raimi. And then you also have Fargo. And they're both very... Like, there's similarities about this idea. And, you know, it's this... Uh, Midwest, snowy, crime story money. Like, for the most part, they kind of stay on their own sides of the field, you know, whether it's Dark Man or Blood Simple. Like, they... Uh, but there's, like, that one film that feels like either one could direct it. And I think when I was a kid, I always thought A Simple Plan was a Coen Brothers movie because it actually felt so similar to them.
0: Oh, I love that. I wonder how exactly they inspired each other from just like top to bottom. I wonder how much they were like trading scripts, talking about ideas. I mean, they both use that like Raising Arizona, Evil Dead 2, like zoom, 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 zoom. Like yeah. in, in Raising Arizona, they like zoom, zoom, zoom up, this, up the outside window and into the room of the kids. They're both, you know, creating this new look of, fin- of film together.
2: But maybe the part of it too, why it didn't work and going back to what you're saying about, you know, why is Crime Wave not a great, mix is because the styles are so distinctive i think a coen brothers script in anyone else's hands is not a coen brothers movie right because i don't think that their script is i think a template for their style right And, and the same thing for sam raimi and i feel like maybe this is an interesting argument for you know i love this show on stars uh called the the chair and it was about uh Give the, they have two different directors uh, the same script and one made like a mumblecore movie and one made like an American Pie style uh, film and it was based on the same script and I do think better to learn with your friends than to learn in a different way. And I think that, you know, Quentin Tarantino was very aware of that early on where he only let Tony Scott make True Romance. Like, he's like, okay, you can make that one. I'm going to make this one. Like, he held back certain things because he knew he wanted to make it differently. And, you know, I think his big regret is Natural Born Killers became an Oliver Stone movie, not a Quentin Tarantino movie. And whereas True Romance feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie directed by Tony Scott, Natural Born Killers just feels like an Oliver Stone film.
0: It does. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, kind of the word I feel like you're circling around is independence, right? Like, mm-hmm. do I have the independence to have my own voice? Because I think that's also a lot of what went wrong with Crime Wave. Is that being like a studio movie, feeling like they got nothing but notes, feeling like nobody trusted them to have the creative freedom to do what he felt like he could do? You know, it's all interference. Like, they had 15 times the money and none of the freedom. And I right. And I mean, it's interesting because now I think of Raimi as like a big studio director. And I don't know what inside of him made it able to switch. Maybe it's just becoming more successful and having studios trust you more. But that feels like such a dividing line. Like who gets to have
2: who gets to have creative freedom in Hollywood? I think even if you're a big director, it's a short list. This is my argument that watching Doctor Strange, uh, the second Doctor Strange film that he directed, Sam Raimi. It felt like a Sam Raimi movie. Like, there are elements... Is it the best Sam Raimi movie? I I enjoyed the hell out of it. Like, I know that's a very controversial opinion. Uh, but I feel like he's going to deliver something that is going to be unique and fun and weird and also that will be people-pleasing. And, you know, on varying levels. Like, Darkman, you know, that was a bigger movie, but I think it's sort of, like, it's weird enough to capture people and have people talk about it, like this movie, too. It's like, you have to go see Evil Dead 2 because I saw X, Y, and Z. Like, I still remember, out of every Marvel movie I've seen, and I'm a big Marvel fan, you know that, but, like, I still remember that opening sequence in Doctor Strange where he's fighting a giant eyeball in the middle of New York City. That's so visually more interesting than a lot of stuff in Marvel films. Like, it just is incredibly Sam Raimi. Like, and I think that that's, I think that maybe the freedom that he gets is we'll give him this, like these little movies and he can go do his weird shit on it and it will really connect. And then sometimes when he goes to make, I think you can see that in benefit and deficit, like him restrained is Spider-Man one and two him off the leash is Spider-Man three. And I don't think the Spider Man, like Spider Man Three, is like a, a weird mess and too many I things. Kind
0: of like Spider Man Three. Oh days. wow! Okay,
2: good for you. Uh, but again, but I think that like nine times out of ten, he's going to make something that's engaging on some level.
0: That's true. Although I would, I didn't feel the same reamy in the new Doctor Strange until that last act when all the dead people come back to life.
2: Uh-huh. Then
0: I was like okay, I feel the creepy sense of horror. There were just parts, especially the middle stretch, where I was like, eh, this is nothing. This is just big people yelling at each other in front of giant CG backdrops. But like, gosh, now I'm thinking, now I'm trying to remember like what at all I thought of his Wizard of Oz movie, which is so long ago. I don't know why. The, his Wizard of Oz movie that he was like, James Franco, that just has gotten written over in my head as like, The movie that had a tie in nail polish, and I liked a lot of their nail polishes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's really all I remember. They had a tie in nail polish? Oh my gosh. Yeah, they
0: had an OPI tie in nail polish, and they had this really great, like, dark gold, dusty one that when you painted it, it it kind of dried to a texture like concrete. It was very cool. I still have some bottles because when I find something, I love it, like, stockpile it forever. But oh, but you know what it is? I was thinking this, you know, in talking about like careers and arcs and growths, I want to throw this at you. Ash and Evil Dead 1 to Ash and Evil Dead 2 is like Ripley in Alien to Aliens where it's like this is the movie that creates the full character that then we love and then is able to like go on and exist in all sorts of like TV shows and just in pop culture forever.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that like look, you get 3 times to do something. I think you'll be able to find the things that work and get rid of the things that don't, you know. It this is in a weird way we're watching what you learn in film school, going back to, you know, it's like they're getting three chances to do it right. And and that, and that kind of locks in your, your voice and for better or for worse, you know, I think that like we see Sam Raimi getting better. We see Bruce Campbell getting better. We see them all like perfecting their craft. And it's funny because oftentimes you don't get to see it on the same premise, but here it's three different times. I haven't seen the short. Have you ever seen the short?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually went back and pulled a little clip of it so you can hear like 1978, basically 10 years before this, Bruce Campbell acting in the same movie.
1: For a change, you mean? You know this place we're staying? It used to be part of an old Indian burial ground. Very sacred and holy. Ooh, it's scary. What, is it cursed or something?
2: Yeah. As a matter of fact, it is.
1: Are you serious? Yeah. Don't worry about it. You're only cursed by the evil spirits if you violate the graves of the dead.
0: I mean, there it's like a, a Native American burial ground. But same idea, same idea. Um, and some of the other tweaks, I guess, like in 1978, they did make it being slightly more traditional because they were like studying the horror film. Their whole thing was they would go to drive-in movies together. And they would sit because they're like, drive-in movies are perfect because you can really watch the audience react. If they don't like a thing in a horror movie, they'll start honking. They'll start putting their brights on so you can't see the screen. And they would take notes about like what annoyed the crowd at the drive-in during a horror film. So that one, it's like, yeah, they had a final girl, a little bit more normal. But now that I'm thinking about it, there are three chances to make a movie. This is exactly what Robert Rodriguez said he wanted to do with El Mariachi. And didn't get to do. Right. That he was like, I'm going to do three. They're going to slowly build. I'm going to learn what I'm doing. And instead it was like one. And ta-da, now you are Robert Rodriguez. And how strange that must have been.
2: Desperado is, is kind of his second take on it. That's
0: true. But it is, okay, like, there's a really great documentary on the making of the Evil Dead uh, 2 with like the special effects team, you know, like Greg Nicotero and everybody, and they talk about how they met Robert Rodriguez and what a fan he is of the Evil Dead.
1: Was, uh, you know, Cameron dragging him out to see that. We work with Robert Rodriguez all the time, and when Robert found out that we had done Evil Dead 2, he was like, I, I didn't know you did Evil Dead 2. Yeah, look, as a matter of fact, here's all the video that I shot on set. So we spent one night watching all of it, all six hours. He came over to my house and he's like, oh, I want to see more, I want to see more.
0: I wonder, and I have absolutely no basis for this, if it is the experience of the evil dead having three chances to make their movie that gave Rodriguez the idea of needing three chances to do El Mariachi in the first place. Because clearly he was aware because it is a loony thing to be like, I need three chances to make this movie. Where does that come from? It, I, I don't know if this is what inspired him to think well,
2: about it. Well, because maybe when you're starting off, you're like, I, I have to learn. It's like, this is my film school. How do I do it better? I can only do it better once I see it. You know, and there's something about that. Like, you know, it's it's a perfectionism. It's it's a a want to be like, well, the only way I can learn it is by doing it. And I'll, I'll get it better and better and better. I mean, I guess the difference with El Mariachi is that like he was going to make three films and then make his Hollywood film. I don't think he was going to make El Mariachi three times, right? Um, yeah. And the difference here is they were kind of forced into making Evil Dead three times. Or like, well, the first one, you know, the short translated into the movie, and then because of the failure of Crime Wave, it translated into, like, let's try to do it again, right? So I don't think any of this stuff is completely uh, thought out ahead of time, but I do think it's a... The, this thing that we talk about all the time, like is it worth going back? And sometimes you can make the argument, and most famously, again, like with George Lucas, he goes back and maybe messes it up, you know, and then some people go like, oh no, you can go back and actually make it better. You know, can you redo it? can and and I think what these things do is it keeps on plussing them up. I think desperado is a plus up from, you know, from El Mariachi, they're not, just retre- like they're, they're not just retreading, they're not just like polishing, they are truly reimagining like, okay, now I have more tools, now I could do more, now I could get rid of this, I can get, you know, they, they really are, it's not just editing, and I think that like sometimes with George Lucas, it felt like stickers on a notebook, you know, it felt like, okay, well, you're just putting more stickers on it, like you're not like just throwing out the notebook and starting with a new notebook, you know, I don't know, like there's something, there's a difference in how they both tackled the redos. You know, even even Coppola, I think just some things seem like a cash grab. This felt like they really wanted to do something different.
0: That makes sense. I mean, I can imagine that they wouldn't have wanted to even make Evil Dead 2 if it weren't for the fact that they felt like they needed to make something. Right. If this was the only thing they thought they could get money for. I, I think part of the story is like they were kicking around the idea of doing Evil Dead 2. They mentioned it to like some crew members that they might have wanted to hire. One of them was working on a movie... Yeah, that's it. One of them was working on Maximum Overdrive with Stephen King and Dino De Laurentiis. Dino, who we like talked about a lot, you know, when we talked about Conan. He also did Blue Velvet. I mean, God, Dino, this is a guy who goes all the way back doing like Fellini movies, Bergman movies. But uh, the word got to that set through like a potential crew member that they're thinking about doing Evil Dead 2. And I think Stephen King was like, yes, give them money, Dino, now this movie must exist. So it's like once again, Stephen King kind of stepping in and being like, take care of these people. They have something special. And that is a nice through line. People stand, the the protector, the shepherder, the person who takes the time to go to the mat for somebody they think is talented.
2: Well, and that's what, Dino De Laurentiis did this thing where he created a fake production company, Rosebud, right? It wasn't a real institution, but he was forbidden to release an unrated movie. And so he created that just to release Evil Dead 2, you know, which is really, I mean, that's above and beyond.
0: It's so funny that this movie had to be shown unrated. I mean, I know it has tons of blood, but it doesn't have more blood than like The Shining.
2: And it's sword. not really gory, though. It's but it's like I think it's that weird thing where, you know, an independent movie is not going to get the pressure maybe from the MPAA to push it through because there's nothing in it that is really. I mean, but I guess maybe it is the level of violence if you're looking at it with a non-satirical eye. If you are just looking at like a okay, man. Chops girl's head off with shovel, uh, you know. Cuts own hand.
0: People laugh.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. It's like you know, like you know, uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing because I think sometimes independent movies do get treated, or at least at this time, a little bit more harsher through that system.
0: Oh, for sure. And I mean, I feel like they're even aware of it, which is why it's, it's strange that it still happened. Like Greg Nicotero would talk about how one of their rules for all of the blood was like whenever we can, let's not have the blood be red. Let's have it be like a wild color because maybe yeah, that will like make it green. easier to get our yeah. Rating. yeah.
1: One thing we were always aware of, always, was red blood is bad. It, it, anytime any of our characters were killed, there was black blood, there was green blood, there was dark red blood, there was yellow blood, but at that time, the consensus was red blood would be bad for the ratings board. And the ratings board isn't going to want red blood, so let's come up with different colors. So even when Bruce chops his hand off, and, and we don't see the actual chainsaw coming in and making contact, but we pan away and we spray a little blood up onto his face. But all of that stuff was done um, with the intention to make it a little cartoony.
0: But even so, like one of the reviews I found, was just like aghast that this movie existed. This is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. It wrote, I have a deal with myself. I get to walk out of one movie a year and still write about it as long as I stay for at least half of the film and own up to my early departure. Evil Dead 2 is this year's bye-bye movie. It's neither scary nor funny. It's as enjoyable as a kick in the lower abdomen. The audience of 15 or 20 in the theater thought this was pretty funny, I would never say that these are not nice people since I am aware that my own taste in comedy is pretty weird and I am a nice person, but I am baffled by their laughter at Evil Dead 2. And then he goes on to call it like indescribably painfully boring, and he says, Evil Dead 2 is a feature-length movie about what would happen if the three stooges poked each other in the eye for real and drew blood for an hour and 25 minutes. That sounds fun. It kind of does sound fun, but it also sounds like he completely walked out and missed the ending. He missed everything. I mean, he missed... This movie, to me, takes such a weird, weird turn. Yes. Halfway through, when they open up the Book of the Dead, and there is the illustration of Ash. The You know, they talk about the hero from the sky.
3: What is it? 1300 AD, they called this man the uh, hero from the sky. He was prophesized to have destroyed the evil.
1: Didn't do a very
0: good job. And nobody acknowledges that it's Ash. That's what's so funny about it. It's like, it seems so beyond them. There could be another man with like that face, that hair, that shirt, that chainsaw, that it's like the movie refuses to acknowledge it. There's no like, that's weird. There's no stop to talk about the lore. How could that be? It's well, so funny. And then he even just insults him. Clearly he wasn't very good at his job.
2: What? <laughs> there, There is something really interesting here too, which is I think... Horror fans are responsible for lifting up some of our best directors. I think horror directors are a more collaborative group than others. You know, like this is a movie where uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street, they play the evil dead on a television screen in it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, and then as like a tribute to that, Uh, a glove belonging to Freddy Krueger is hanging in uh, the tool shed in Evil Dead 2. Like, there is this, like, support. And I think when you look at people like John Carpenter and Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, there was an article about Quentin Tarantino recently that he reached out to the directors of the Super Mario Brothers movie, the the first one, John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins, like, to save them from this Hollywood exile. Like, there is this energy here, maybe— from these independent filmmakers. We're making things that are different, that are interesting. We need to support our community. We need to get here. We need to get each other's back. Like we're outside of Hollywood and we're going to help raise everybody up. Wes Craven in, in the mix as well. Like, And I think maybe that's the reason why these directors and actors get second chances, get third chances, because none of them are bad. I, you know, it's. It, but it is like, but it will give you another chance to hit. And it's sort of, if you look at TV, like the Seinfeld analogy, it's like, it took a while before Seinfeld connected to people. And then it became a gigantic hit. But it's like, if you have a believer, if you have somebody that's like saying, no, this is good. No, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to I'm going to keep on supporting you. I'm going to keep on helping you get in the mix. You have more chances to get at bat and you just don't disappear. And I think sometimes when you're in a big Hollywood studio system right out of the gate, it's like you become disposable.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's super, super true. I mean, I want to figure out how we can take that lesson and, like, protect future voices, you know? Because... Well, I
2: do think that that's happening. I think it's happening, you know, and again, it's primarily in horror. Like, I think that M. Night had his comeback because Jason Blum and what Blumhouse did. Like, you know, and, and Jordan Peele has his launch because of Blumhouse. I, I And I think that that, to me, feels... I, I think comedy is incredibly... Uh, collaborative, always, you're seeing people mix in and out and support each other and raise voices and stuff like that. You know, I I think that cinema has changed in a way, in a weird way, but now it's like, can you share stuff? Can you, can you help people get the word out about their own thing?
0: I wonder if the drama community is like that.
2: Because like yeah uh-huh. you're right
0: the horror community continues to still really have each other's back I feel like the I horror think the comedy community, community, community the comedy too. too yeah but does drama do like the the do, do, do the prestige drama people are they like yo 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 you got to go see this prestige drama I mean I guess you could say that that's sort of what happened with like Andrea Riseborough and her acting thing all the drama people were like yo support this drama right but I can't think of that many other examples
2: well it's interesting because I think that there's something about Comedy and horror as being like outside of the box, right? It's like the weird, the weird kids. It's the movies that aren't nominated for Academy Awards. It's the movies that are the more niche group, and it's it's the movies that people might walk out of and go like, "I have a great sense of humor," but that movie wasn't funny. It's like that guy is saying like, "I'm pretty weird with my sense of humor." Well, clearly you're not because if you have a weird sense of humor, this is right up your alley, like you know. You may have a pedestrian sense of humor, or
0: you. Yeah, who goes like, around being like, I have a pedestrian sense of humor.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is why I always. I mean, I was back in the day. I I have a lot of like anyone who's like really shitty to like any sort of stand up. I'm always like, well, if they're packing a theater, it's working. Like people aren't laughing because it's not funny. Like you have to look around and be like, am I missing it? Like it may not be my cup of tea. But it's working. And, and that's something that I think it's hard for people to admit sometimes, too. And this is what, you know, we've seen a lot of these reviews. I, I think that this Evil Dead is a movie, oddly, maybe more space-worthy than El Mariachi. Like, El Mariachi is an interesting story about how a movie is made. And it's a, and it's a really inspiring tale about just what you could do on a small budget. This is a movie that I do think changes the game a little bit. Like, there's something about this. If I'm looking at the career of Sam Raimi, I might go, this might be the most representative film for Sam Raimi. I don't know. Yeah, where he has just
0: enough money to get to do things and all the freedom he could use. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that idea. But And also to the kind of the point you're making... I'm I'm really in a headspace lately where I'm thinking about how valuable it is to try to understand why people like a thing you don't like. Right. I like I thought about that a lot with Dungeons and Dragons. Like, why do I find the game Dungeons and Dragons so miserable? Mm-hmm. And I was realizing part of why I think I find that game so miserable, like when I wrote about when I wrote my review for The Times, I was just like, you know, my version of purgatory is five people talking yes. about whether or not to open a door, which is right. true and is a thing that happened when my boyfriend was playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons during pandemic with our friends, just listening to people talk about opening a door. And I was like, upon reflection, maybe I'm just not that much of a team player. You know, like, maybe I'm just not that patient. Maybe it's me. Maybe I am the problem to not see the fun in talking about a door. So then I did have to play Dungeons and Dragons, and it was pretty fun. Um, But, like, you know, to that extent, like, right now I'm trying to think a lot about how there's a certain type of art that I find so infuriating. It's like the art which is, like, on somebody's wall, and it tells you how to live your fucking life. Like, live, laugh, love, or smile, or every day is a moment for joy. And I get so irrationally annoyed by those things. And when you're irrational, you're like, clearly something's triggering me about that. Like, why, why do I hate a sign telling me how to live my life? Why am I so knee-jerk reactionary about that?
2: Because I feel like that sign telling you how to live your life is actually, I get that same way. It's like it's McDonald's, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's a, like, it's like, it's not real. It's not genuine, You know, it's like someone going, oh, I can monetize this thing. It's not like, like hearing a good piece of advice, like I'll listen to an interview and I'll write down something that I I hear. I'm like, oh, that's inspiring to me. That's interesting to me. But like purchasing it from somebody else, I really, I'm like, nope, no, thank you.
0: But then I want to think about this. Let's take this one step further. That art exists because people really like it. And honestly, I feel like almost anytime I see an interior lately, there's an, there's one of those art things there, you know? And so, like, the people who own that art, what if they're higher evolved than us? And what if they don't have a knee-jerk, you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do sign? And, like, what if they can see a reminder about how to live a more peaceful life and smile at it and make them a little bit nicer? What if instead of me being such a condescending jerk, what if I'm wrong?
2: Well, I mean, I love where you're coming from. I think that the (laughs) inspirational quotes from, like, a Hallmark store is probably the wrong energy. Like, I often find myself going, like, if everyone loves a TV show, sometimes there's an instinct of, like, I don't want to watch it. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't be that good. Um, Like how I've never seen Mad Men. Right. So, you know, and and you were like that with Secession?
0: Oh, just Mad Men. I like Secession.
2: but But there was a while where you weren't watching it.
0: And I've never seen Game of Thrones. Or Hamilton. You're right. I have a problem. I have a problem. I should get over this.
2: I think where I come down on it is I always say it may not be for me, but I appreciate that it's good. And I think that maybe that's the dividing line. It's like I appreciate what's happening here, even though I don't like it. Like, And I think that a lot of people like throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, I don't like it. So hence, it's not good. And I think what I'm trying to do as I get older is go. I can find what I love in it. And I like a lot of stuff. I've watched a lot of stuff. I've watched a lot of stuff with my kids and I can find odd joy. Like I wrote something about James Marsden on Twitter during the pandemic. I was like, you know, this guy, I was like, this guy, kills it in these kid movies i mean i like him i like him you know and when he's doing westworld and stuff like that too but the amount of like time that he's spending like in cars with like a Easter bunny or sonic and acting and and, like throwing himself into it i was like i i can appreciate that on a level that you know is like i think maybe it's like can you try to find something that you do connect to i don't know if that totally connects into what i'm saying but I, i think it's like it's so easy to to write off something as being trash because even the stuff that I don't like, I am I engage in in some way.
0: You're right. I mean, I think engagement should be like, it should be what we aspire to. And in a way, that's sort of what we're talking about here. Like the, the practical effects, making you engage with it, making you shake hands with this movie and say, yes, I'll do this with you. I'm coming on this journey with you. You know, like. I want to feel engaged and I want a movie to let me feel engaged because there are movies you go to and you're just like, okay, this is just like a CGI office. I'm just supposed to sit here like Avatar. I'm just right. supposed to engage with Avatar, Avatar 2 especially. I'm just supposed to like sit back and grok some whales. Okay, grok and some whales, but that's all the movie wants from me. And I resent that. I don't like that. I want to be engaged. Show me like a, a sock puppet whale and be like, look at this whale. It's beautiful. And let me imagine how beautiful it is.
2: Well, this is, I think, the argument around these Academy Award movies, where it is simply, you must like it. It's high art. It's high quality. It's like, well, let me just be my own judge here. Let me like what I like. You know, it's like this. And it's like a forced feeding of like, we're making this movie. It's going to be an Academy Award movie. It's going to come out there. And I think people reject that sometimes. And that's why... uh people don't go out to see it it has it almost comes in like not saying like I'm a movie enjoy me it's like no no I'm an elevated movie I, I, you know there's something about that
0: I love all of this and I'm sorry to put this cap on what I find to be like a really beautiful conversation we're having but I did promise my boyfriend that during this episode I would talk about how Evil Dead 2 was also a really key film for the death metal community and I promised, I promised that I would play a little bit of a song from a band called Deicide called Dead by Dawn love it Thank you for bearing with me, Adam. I love you. That is my testimony to how much I love you. I did agree to play that
2: song. I love it. And I'll tell you, uh, (laughs) by the way, I was uh, front row at uh, Evil Dead, the Broadway musical, which uh, was amazing. Uh, And it was, or maybe it was off Broadway, Uh, but it was great. Uh, It was pretty awesome, insane, bloody, super fun. And one of the fun things about it was that it, it kind of worked perfectly as a musical because it is so simple in a way. uh, And they really just embraced all the blood and stuff like that. And I think that, you know, to embrace the role of Ash and not be Bruce Campbell, like, he almost created a character larger than life that could be on stage and it, it felt totally natural. I, that movie, that was such a fun experience. Uh, a great one. You get splattered in the audience. There was a splatter zone. It was great.
0: <laughs> that makes me think about how their first short, The Within the Woods, they built support in the community by playing it uh, as like a teaser before the midnight showings of a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, and it so does good. feel like a natural fit. We should do Rocky Horror.
2: I That'd love be that fun to so do, much. yeah. I'd love to do that.
0: I mean, yeah, I feel like we're on kind of like a weird tear of like comedy in horror because I had an idea of what I wanted to do for our next week's film, which is also a comedy horror that I think tilts a bit more into comedy than horror. I feel like we should do the 2014 What We Do in the Shadows, a movie that I remember seeing at Sundance and coming out quoting nonstop. I love this movie.
2: Uh, It's so fantastic. And I think a lot of people have found this movie after maybe finding the TV series on FX now as well, which has been a huge hit for them. Um, And I would like to go back and watch this because it is really another example of an incredibly unique point of view, breaking a mold, uh, but also entering into something that maybe be a little bit more accessible by coming at it from a horror perspective at first.
0: That's true. And it is also an example of outsider creators. Because I yeah. think up until this point, I had known them for like Eagle versus Shark, a movie that I really hated, but I hated it in such a way that maybe I should rewatch it. You're coming in and now, you know, in the Taika case, feeling like they own everything in Hollywood.
2: Well, because they made something that was so beloved. And, you know, Jermaine Komet, obviously, uh, you know, with uh, Fight of the Concords, you know, has made something also that people really embraced i i just think that this is a really that this will be really interesting to see because we went from the you know so we went from the 90s back to the 80s and now we're going to the 2010s and we're seeing how this kind of auteurship this unique voice in these weird little independent movies can be a catalyst that breaks up in hollywood in a different way so i'm excited to do this i think this is great
0: I'm always entranced when we stumble into a theme. (laughs) I know. It's been
2: really fun. Like I feel like it's very improv. We're just kind of like letting us uh, let each movie figure it out. Yeah, we love it. All right. So, Amy, uh, what we do in Shadows, take a listen to the trailer. When you get three
3: vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. (laughs) Viago was an 18th century dandy. Look, a
1: ghost cop. Vladislav
3: is a bit of a pervert. This is my torture
2: chamber. The deacon's like the young bad boy of the group. I'm supposed to pay rent,
1: but I don't. The trouble with being a vampire is you have to be invited in.
3: i to the bar, please. $4 is
2: than. Will you invite us in? We
1: need some fresh...
2: And you can find that wherever you get your uh, streaming films. One big butt. We're going to hold off one week before we play that episode because next week, I really want to welcome
0: the smartest girl in Hollywood onto the show, uh, Karina Longworth. Her new season of You Must Remember This has just started. It's called Erotic 90s. I'm already absolutely hooked. Uh, she, you know, makes the kind of statement early on, episode one, this is the decade that shaped her ideas about sexuality. And when she said that, I was like, oh, God, me, too, for better and worst, for Pretty Woman and Poison Ivy and everything in between. Uh, so I'm really excited to have her on the show next week. We're going to do a special top three talking about three erotic films that just trace our relationship with things that make us uncomfortable on screen and the battle of the sexes. So that's next week. And then we'll have the vampire battle of vampires and werewolves with what we do in the shadows.
2: Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find The Unspooled Show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like Screen Test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com.